Greetings, Word Horde. We're here with an exciting option for you, a version of our podcast without any ads. That's right. No advertising interruptions, just the content you love, ready to go in your favorite podcast apps like Spotify and Apple Podcasts. It's another way to support the show, ensuring that we keep bringing you the word stories and language explorations that you love. Try it at waywardradio.org slash adfree. And it's affordable. For just a small subscription fee, you can enjoy Away With Words uninterrupted, except by us. Plus, it makes a great gift. Know somebody who loves language as much as you do? Give them the gift of words. Easy to sign up, easy to enjoy. It's the same Away With Words, just streamlined for your listening pleasure. Go to waywardradio.org slash adfree. Support us, support the show, and enjoy an ad-free listening experience. waywardradio.org slash adfree. Thank you. You're listening to Away With Words, the show about language and how we use it. I'm Grant Barrett. And I'm Martha Barnett. We heard from Kelly Hayes in Carson City, Nevada, who says that she recently stopped drinking alcohol, but she's irked by the term mocktail. She says most other words to describe a beverage without liquor are negative, so I'm looking for a positive phrase or word. And Grant, I'm sort of irked by the word mocktail as well. I mean, if you invite people over for an evening of mocktails, I think somehow that suggests there'll be something missing when actually these drinks can be quite sophisticated and complex and an end in themselves. And I was surprised to learn that the word mocktail has been around since at least the 1930s, but I'm wondering if other people would like an alternative to the word mocktail. Yeah, I don't feel like they need a separate name. For example, you can have artisanal sodas, and they are outstanding. And artisanal sodas come with uh, high-quality flavored syrups and high-quality carbonated water, and you add fruit to them, and in a fancy glass, and that's a heck of a drink. And it's basically the equivalent of a mocktail, but it doesn't need to be called a mocktail. It's just a fantastic soda. But if you're specific about what you're going to be serving, I think what she's looking for is is a, a name for a drink that has its own identity, sort of like vegan or vegetarian. It doesn't mention what it doesn't have. Right. Um, the, the best alternative I've seen is hentail. I like that. Oh, Over hentail. Hentails. Yeah, sure. <laughs> I mean, the alternative, I think, is just to reclaim the word. You know, so many words get get reclaimed, words that uh, initially sound negative. Um, but uh, I'm wondering what our listeners think about that. Absolutely. If you've got an alternate name for drinks that ordinarily have alcohol, but in this case don't, something other than a mocktail, we'd love to know, particularly if it's something real that you've heard out there in the wild. 877-929-9673 or email words at waywardradio.org. Hello, you have a way with words. Hi, my name is Lauren Daniel. I'm calling from coastal North Carolina and near a little town called Swansboro. What's on your mind, Lauren? So I grew up listening to my mother and my grandmother use obscure terms all the time. So the one in particular um, I wanted to reach out uh, to y'all about was the term sticky wicket. My mother would always say that phrase. My grandmother would say it. And uh, it was always used to kind of talk about a, a conundrum that one might be in, like if they were in a tough spot and uh, not sure how to, how to act. They were in a sticky wicket. Were they cricket fans? <laughs> no, not at all. 
And um, and that's why I was so curious about it, because it just seems like an obscure term to me. And so I was just wondering where it could have even come from. But you knew enough about it to know that it was from cricket. Well, I've put that together over the years with my father. Ah, gotcha. But okay. even, but I mean, I've never watched a game before, but I can mm. imagine mm-hmm. that maybe they get sticky, Does those wickets get sticky. I don't know. <laughs> Those wickets do get sticky, or at least yeah, they used to. <laughs> it's all the gummy bears they eat while they play. <laughs> I know. Yeah, so we, this probably isn't a concrete term. Well, it's it's really interesting. It does come from the game of cricket, and I'm trying to understand the game of cricket because it's becoming more and more popular in this country. I just read an article about mm. the fact that it's becoming really popular in North Texas, for example, because of all the South Asians oh. who have settled there. So I think that um, in your future may be a cricket match. <laughs> but um, let me tell you about this phrase. It refers to a wicket. Now, in cricket, a wicket is a set of three stumps with two sticks across the top. And there's one wicket at each end of a strip of grass called the pitch. And the batter stands in front of the wicket and tries to prevent those sticks from getting knocked off by the other team's bowler. And the batter also tries to hit the ball out of reach of the defending team. I've picked up this much. And the term wicket has also extended to not just those little wooden structures that you'll see, but the grassy space in between them. And if that space is wet, then the ball is going to bounce really erratically. It may skid across the grass or it may take out a chunk of turf. And what happens is that the stretch between the wickets becomes a lot more unpredictable. It becomes harder to navigate. Um, So it's called a sticky wicket. And the phrase playing on a sticky wicket or batting on a sticky wicket means metaphorically that you're in a difficult or awkward or unpredictable situation. But Grant and I have a wonderful time with cricket terms because there are so many of them that uh, haven't found their way into the language necessarily, but but are just really fun to say. Dibbly dobbly. <laughs> yeah, that's a good silly one. Silly mid-off. <laughs> or even, they even have a term, Lauren, for the razzing that they do of each other. Mm-hmm. The, um, sledging is what they call it when they try to distract their opponents by uh, teasing them or making fun of them or, or, or making them laugh. It's yeah, called it's, sledging. Yeah, and there are lots of sledging remarks that are collected <laughs> of some of the famous sledging that's been done or uh, just because it's well known, you know, yeah. just great players with great sledging. Huh. Yeah, I like that better than trash talk. Sledging. <laughs> Lauren, so I hope we've helped some. Well, thank you all so much for your time. I always enjoy uh, listening to you. I always learn so much. So many things I didn't know I didn't know. So thanks for all of your <laughs> insight. Well, Lauren, call us again sometime next time you hear something like that. Yeah, take care. <laughs> you bet. You bet. Thanks, right. y'all. Have a great day. Okay. You too. Bye-bye. I happened to be looking at a newspaper archive and specifically the Minneapolis Journal from Sunday, July 15, 1906, and I came across a wonderful headline, Noisy Hungry Frogs Sadden Farmer's Life. They scare his cattle and they also eat his flannel shirt. <laughs> they ate his flannel shirt, huh? 
What? Yeah, I almost didn't want to read the story, but it was a wire story about a farm in Lehigh County, Pennsylvania. It was just four short paragraphs, and it was about a farmer named Alvin Shoemaker who was complaining that these large frogs had become pests on his farm. And uh, the story said their croaking scares his cattle when he drives them to water. And last year, they devoured his strawberry crop. And then two years ago, they got into his summer house and ate a half dozen of his best flannel shirts, which lay there in the laundry basket. <laughs> There's just so much that, that was unsaid in that story. I, and I... <laughs> I, I, I uh, yes, I'm confused. I didn't know that frogs would eat flannel, but okay. Uh, I, I guess, yeah. Mr. Shoemaker, I'll take your word for it at this distance. <laughs> yeah, I wonder about that, too. But uh, noisy, hungry frogs sadden farmer's life. I just... That sounds like it sounds like a riddle or a palindrome, but it's none <laughs> of these things. Yeah, right. <laughs> Send your linguistic mysteries and your weird headlines, 877-929-9673. Email words at waywardradio.org. Hello, you have a way with words. Good afternoon. This is Nell Weber from Virginia Beach, Virginia. Hello, Nell. Welcome to the show. Hey, Nell. Thank you. In my family, my grandmother, and this started with my great-grandfather, who was a farmer, and he used the term as clean as seven waters. Now, he had a dog, which he named Seven Waters, and somehow or another we always assumed that's where the expression came from. <laughs> he had a dog named Seven Waters? Yes, because that dog could clean a plate so clean that it looked like it had been washed. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just I'm just imagining him standing on the porch yelling for Seven Waters. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Uh, he was a he was a farmer who was a little bit land poor, but he had 13 children, so he had no no lack of help. Child oh rich. <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. And one dog? <laughs> he had a pack of hunting dogs, but this oh, okay. dog would get there first and lick the plate. Absolutely. Nobody had anything left on the plate to even sniff at. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> I don't know if I've met a dog that can't do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure that's a special talent. So- so seven waters, clean as seven waters. Martha, I got a feel in here that there's more to it than the dog. Well, yeah, for sure. Well, let, let's talk about the word waters here. I mean, usually water functions as a mass noun. You know, that term applies to nouns that designate something that's usually impossible to count. Examples of mass nouns would be sand or cutlery or, or literature. You know, usually those are not plural. And in this case, the word water functions as a count noun. It designates the use of water, that is, a rinse. So seven waters, uh, clean as seven waters, refers to each of uh, seven consecutive uses of water. Um, Seven washes, seven rinses. It's an interesting notion because there's a reference to this kind of thing in uh, the Bible, in in uh, Second Kings. Uh, Naaman is told to wash seven times in the muddy Jordan River. Uh, and at first he refuses, and then he goes along with it, and he's healed of leprosy. And uh, so seven uh, traditionally uh, symbolizes perfection. And if, if you're washing seven times, uh, then powerful things can happen. And Grant is not just in that culture. 
right? No, it isn't. As a matter of fact, in, in Islam, there's a tradition of seven waters as well, and it, and it shows up in a variety of languages spoken in countries where Islam is a dominant religion. For example, in Farsi, to wash with seven waters is a way of saying, as one reference book puts it, to perform one's ablutions with great nicety and circumspection. And in Farsi, it sounds something like behefta abshastan. Um, so the seven waters are either a literal or figurative perfection, like Martha said, or completeness. It's uh, It ensures that something uh, maybe is a person, a situation, a reputation is completely or perfectly clean. And also oh. in Kurdish, there is a saying or a proverb that something like he is beyond seven waters meaning he is beyond redemption, either literally uh, beyond redemption of God or beyond redemption in a personal sense, like, uh, oh, he's a hopeless case. He'll never, he'll never change his ways. Is this a, a common saying uh, in English? I've never heard it anywhere else. No, but Martha, it's interesting, isn't it, that it goes back that there might be that common shared, like Islam and Judaism and Christianity all have that shared religious root. And I wouldn't be surprised to find that the seven waters is connected there, you know, that all of these cultures share these common religious um, influences. Right. And if you look at uh, old newspapers from the early part of the 20th century, sometimes you'll see laundry services that advertise seven waters. That is, they're they're supposedly rinsing your laundry seven times to get it (laughs) super duper clean. Oh, that's something I really didn't know. Thank you very much. Mm Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for calling. Call us again sometime and you take care of yourself, all right? All right. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. 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 Good, clean fun with us. 877-929-9673. More about language and how we use it as Away With Words continues. Hey, we've got something special for those of you who love our show but could do without the ads. That's right. Imagine away with words, the same engaging conversations, the same deep dives into language without advertising interruptions. We're talking about our ad-free podcast feed. It's sleek, clean, and it's just for our supporters. It's at waywardradio.org slash ad-free. It's inexpensive easy to sign up for, and works with all major podcast apps like Apple Podcasts and Spotify. It's an affordable way to support the show and get a seamless listening experience. And if you're feeling generous, why not give a subscription to another Away With Words fan? That's waywardradio.org slash adfree. Sign up today. Your support means the world. waywardradio.org slash adfree. Thank you. You're listening to Away With Words, the show about language and how we use it. I'm Martha Barnett. And I'm Grant Barrett. And here he is at the door with the smell of the sea and the spray and the seaweed in a sailor's hat and a sailor coat. It's our quiz guy, John Chinesky. Hi, John. There is nothing like a dame, nothing in the world. Yeah, we're talking about the ocean today. It's funny you should mention that because the quiz I have. Hi, everybody, by the way. Hello, hello. Um, Today's quiz is called Cruising. Now, um, I figure, you know, sometimes I avoid rhyming games because they're a little easy, but why not take it easy once in a while? And one way to take it easy is to go on a cruise. Now, 
It was within my lifetime that the cruise industry seemed to have discovered theme cruises, like foodie cruises and oldies music cruises, comic book characters, macrame, whatever, professor wrestlers, anything, <laughs> anything you want, you can go on a cruise for it. But the original had to be the classic booze cruise, of course, because it rhymes and, you know, just a few days of relaxing and drinking with friends. Now, I don't drink, but I do appreciate a good rhyme. When I hear booze cruise, I wonder what other rhyming cruises can be arranged. <laughs> for example, a subset of the booze cruise, this trip is for people who make and sell their own beer and ale and want to compare notes and try each other's stuff. It's called the... Ale sale? No, the bruise cruise. Oh, okay. Cruise. <laughs> We're going to just it... stick with cruise. Oh, yeah. it all is going to rhyme with cruise. Okay. <laughs> yeah, sure. I'm taking, like I said, I'm taking it easy on myself today. Let's cruise. Now, some of these are very likely to exist. Now, if you're into murder mysteries, intrigue, Sherlock Holmes and such, you can find <laughs> items to help you solve all over the ship on a <laughs> clues cruise. Clues cruise. You've got to know there's got to be a clues cruise out there. They probably just Must call it a be. clue cruise or something. They probably oh. just call them murder mystery cruises. Over murder there. mystery cruises, yeah. 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 Now, if you've cruised before, you know that nearly every cruise features a few people who are fashionistas and seem to be there just to show off their Manolo Blahniks and their Christian Louboutins <laughs> and other luxury footwear. Let's give them their own cruise and call it... Shoes the, Cruise. The Shoes Cruise, yes. Now, sometimes you need to get away to take care of your mental health. Let's arrange a cruise for poor souls with abulomania, those affected with chronic indecisiveness. We can have seminars on how to overcome it on the... Choose cruise. The oh. choose cruise. <laughs> yes. Now, every person who works with their hands deserves some time just to hang around others of their kind. If you're a woodworker or other kind of builder who wants to compare notes with other handy people, bring your favorite Phillips head to the <laughs> tools cruise. Screws. Oh, screws. Screws is <laughs> a little better, though. I say tools cruise yeah. is not bad. Not no. bad. No, the screws cruise. John, thank you for taking us on this amused cruise. I really appreciate ah, it. That's great. <laughs> Ring us on the telephone, 877-929-9673. That's toll free in the United States and Canada. And if you're anywhere else in the world, you can text us. That phone number is on our website at waywardradio.org. Hello. Welcome to Away With Words. Well, hello. This is Cher Lindbergh. I'm from Minneapolis, Minnesota. But I have a cabin in Amory, Wisconsin. So I, I live in two worlds. What's on your mind? Well, I live in Minneapolis, and I'm born and raised in the Midwest. And a hot dish to us, Scandinavians, is a what the rest of the country calls a casserole. It's any kind of a mixture of, it could be anything from rice and hamburger to noodles, but it's a hot casserole, and we call it a hot dish. So I came across another definition from the new pastor of my church in Minneapolis, uh, Unity Minneapolis, uh, he was from Alabama, born and raised in Alabama. And the reason I noticed there was a difference is I, in front of the church, to welcome this brand new pastor from Alabama, who had, he was, I think, in his 50s or 60s when he started in Minneapolis, I told a joke in front of the entire congregation to welcome him. And the joke went like this. There were three people that were friends and they were in a car and they, they died in a car crash. So all three of them went up to the pearly gates at the same time. And the first one 
saw St. Peter at the pearly gates, and St. Peter looked at the woman and said, so what makes you think you deserve to get into heaven? And the woman said, well, I'm a Catholic, and I have these rosary beads, and I use them so often to count my Hail Marys. My rosary beads are so worn, they're practically falling apart. And St. Peter looks at her and says, all right, you're in. So the next one that arrived at the pearly gates was a man. And St. Peter says, well, what makes you think you should get into heaven? And this guy says, well, I'm a Baptist, and I have a Bible. And when I read my Bible, I read it so much that the words are worn and the pages are falling out. So St. Peter says, all right, you're in. And the third one was a woman. St. Peter said, what makes you think you can get into heaven? And she said, well, I'm Lutheran. And I know that it's only by the love and the grace of God that you can get into heaven. But just in case, I brought a hot dish. <laughs> uh, meaning a casserole, right? Okay, so the yeah. whole congregation laughed, and this poor <laughs> Alabama minister is befuddled going, uh, because in the South, an, a hot dish is a scantily clad female, attractive female. <laughs> they call them a hot dish. Right. Uh, so uh, he uh, couldn't uh, figure out, how is this scantily clad female going to help this woman get into heaven? And he's just... Amazing. So later on, he tells us, could you explain that joke? (laughs) He wanted me to explain the joke. And when I did, and he told us what he was expecting, we just howled even more. So my my question is, is it just the Midwest where we, and we, it's, it's the enunciation to it. We call it a hot dish, meaning a casserole, not a hot dish. Like one word. And in the South, they call it a hot dish. (laughs) And that's my question. (laughs) I didn't hear that growing up when I was in Kentucky. I'm wondering what you use uh, in a hot dish. What do you put in those? It's often cream of mushroom soup, uh, Mm -hmm. hamburger, green beans, tater tots on top. It's it's often a starch, like noodles or rice or potatoes mixed Mm -hmm. with some kind of meat and a a cream sauce. It's usually a a moist dish, like a casserole. Mm -hmm. I guess that's what I would say. Yeah. Those are all known to me from Missouri, but we didn't we didn't call them hot dishes. They were just casseroles. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and you'll find some arm wrestling online about whether uh, one should call that a hot dish or a casserole. People have really strong opinions about that. They do. <laughs> this is mostly Minnesota um, and, and maybe a few of the surrounding states, Martha, but mostly right. Minnesota. Right. Yeah. I mean, to me, a hot dish is just a hot dish with a hot food in it. But there's a way to say it, and I think I hear Cher saying it. It's not a hot dish. It's hot dish. Hot dish. Hot dish. Yeah, yeah almost like yeah. it's one word, right? It is one it word. Is. In a lot it is the, one word. A it lot of the materials and cook. Yeah, in the cookbooks, it's one word, hot dish. Uh, there was a survey conducted in 1986, supposedly, that recorded 3,732 different hot dish recipes in Minnesota. Good. Ah, uh, there you go. Yeah. Most of them of have dish. cream of a mushroom. Cream of mushroom soup is, is one of the main ingredients. It doesn't yeah, the to. Campbell's people are happy. <laughs> oh, they are thrilled. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Cher, for your call. We really appreciate it. And that, that joke is funny. I'm sure your pastor, he's like, okay, I know I found a good bunch here. <laughs> it was. This was a pleasure. <laughs> okay. Right. Bon appetit. <laughs> okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. 877-929-9673. Email words at waywardradio.org. And you can call us on WhatsApp. Send us a voice note, in fact. You can find that WhatsApp number on our website, waywardradio.org. 
We had a voicemail from Annabelle who says that when her son was about four years old, he asked to see if they had something in the have in it. And she said, what? The what? And then she realized he was talking about their cabinet. And to this day, the family calls the cabinet the heavenet, which makes sense, right? Right, because the cabinet has things. <laughs> yeah, look in the heavenet. Heavenet. <laughs> Sweet. Little cute kid things. Those are always the best. Well, I'm glad they were having it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm having it too. Words at waywardradio.org. Hi there. You have a way with words. Hi there. This is Norman. Hi, Norman. Where are you calling from? I'm calling from Oakland, California. Hi, Norman. Welcome to the show. What can we do for you? Well, I have a question. I recently made something called Jok, J-O-O-K, which is also called Confit, Kanji. And I was wondering if the word congeal originated from kanji or vice versa. So is the word kanji originating from Asia or vice versa? All right. You're going to have to describe this dish so that people get a better clue why you think they might be related besides the sound. Uh, kanji is, is rice boiled for at least three hours, and it creates a, um, a porridge. And, but the porridge, if left to cool becomes it congeals mm-hmm. and uh, you can technically make paste out of it to tell you the truth right put up wallpaper you definitely <laughs> could so yeah so kanji was originally for a long time the name for this dish that's c-o-n-g-e-e you used both the old pronunciation and the new one which makes me think that you're familiar with the more modern spelling as well, which is K-A-N-J-I, which has nothing whatsoever to do with the Japanese writing system. And Mm -hmm. you also called it Juk, which is either spelled J-O-O-K or J-U-K. So three different names for this same dish. So to answer your first question, no, the word congealed is completely unrelated to the word kanji or kanji, completely unrelated. It's just a coincidence. And uh-huh. the, I could see why you might think that because it congealed kind of looks like kanji. And the way you might be confused is congealed is related to the French word congelé, which is the past participle of congelé, which means to freeze. But there's an L in there and it shares a Latin root with words like gel and gelatin and jelly and gelato. But let's explore a little bit this dish because the reason it has so many names is because it is known throughout Asia and much of the world. It's called Keyu in Japanese, Kenda or Kanda in Sri Lanka. That juke name it originally was Cantonese, which has been barred into other Chinese dialects and into Thai and also into Hawaii, where you're more likely to hear it called juke or juk than or your kanji or anything else. Um, mm-hmm. and, it, and the word kanji comes from Tamil. It was originally uh, a, uh, a word from India. So, and uh, variety variations on that word exist in most Indian languages. And then English speakers got a hold of uh, the food and the word in the 1600s, borrowed it into, into English, and never looked back. What's really interesting to me is that the word kanji is still used in English, and but the only thing it has in common with dishes of that same name in Asia is rice. A lot of times they're very different dishes, just incredibly different yeah. dishes. 
Well, that's good to know. And that's also good to know that there was an association between the Indians and the Chinese, because I know their two cultures combined greatly. So Yeah, yeah. Even now is two powers who are sometimes in political conflict is in, in culture they um they have a lot of back and forth and i think the historically the ping pong of food and religion and literature and and all that kind of stuff has been a a real nice addition to the world i think the way the two pass things good ideas back and forth between each other so yeah. norman how did it turn out it was actually perfect but i you know you have to trust because i we generally don't cook rice for five hours or three hours. Three hours is what it was. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you can get, out of one cup of rice, you can get quite a big pot of uh, congee, which is, I mean, a full pot. You can get a couple of couple of quarts. So it's, a, it's Chinese chicken soup, by the way, and you can add cilantro or some people add pork or chicken or a little bit mm-hmm. of fish, but it is their chicken soup. That is what they have when they don't feel good or if it's a cold day. It's amazing. Thanks for your perceptive question. We really appreciate it. Well, I appreciate your show. You guys are great. Keep up the good work. Oh, it's our pleasure. Thanks so Take much, Norman. Bye-bye. Okay, bye now. Bye. 877-929-9673. Hello, you have a way with words. Hello, this is Dave Cipollone from Pittsburgh, PA, calling. Hi, Dave. Welcome to the show. Hi, Dave. I was watching a TV show, and someone said, um, whenever you say, you know, like, whenever the reverend says, hold my, pe- hold your peace, he said it was P-I-E-C-E. So I looked it up, and, and I couldn't really um, tell on the internet, like, what, what it was. So I was, I was reading a book by Geraldine Brooks, uh, and the book was called March, and it was about, you know, like, the guy from Little Women, and on page 254... She was talking to a surgeon, and she said, "I didn't know. I didn't know what to say, so I held my peace." P E A C E. Mm-hmm. Now, five pages later, her her husband, who was very sick, was talk, talking about going back into war, into the Civil War. And she said, basically, if he did that, I would hold my peace again. P I E C E. So I'm thinking, well, which is it? You know, like like it looked like in, in the in the book March by Geraldine Brooks, it was it was the same context. She was saying the same thing, but it was P-I-E-C-E versus P-E-A-C-E. So I was like, which is, which is it? Oh, you know? wow. That's really interesting. Just to clarify, in terms of uh, the thing that they say at weddings, you know, if anybody knows why these two should not be joined together, speak now or forever, hold your peace, that is P-E-A-C-E. Yeah, it's it's peace in the uh, with the uh, sense of an absence of noise or stillness or quiet. Uh, for hundreds of yeah. years, the the expression "hold your peace" or "keep your peace" or "have your peace" has meant to remain silent or just to maintain that stillness. And people get confused about that because there's also the entirely separate idiom of "say your piece," you know, "state your piece of a discussion." And the right. idea there is is sort of like if the discussion is a pie, you get to say your piece of it. It's it's one part oh, of the okay. conversation. And then, you know, once once you're finished saying it, then you say, I've said my piece. So two different pieces there. Okay, well, thanks. Thank you very much. Okay, and, nice and now you will you. have peace of mind, right? <laughs> yeah, I'll have peace of mind. I, I, yeah, I, very nice. Okay, thank you for this good, thank you for this kind words. <laughs> okay. Bye-bye. Take care, Dave. Okay, bye-bye. Bye.
Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you. Well, if you're struggling with a language question, we can probably provide you peace of mind. Call us 877-929-9673 or send the question an email to words at waywardradio.org. happened to be stopped in traffic the other day, and I got behind a Range Rover Veeler, and I was thinking, who in the world names cars after uh, <laughs> linguistic terms like Veeler? I was so puzzled. I came back home, and I looked it up, and actually those Range Rovers, I'll, I'm sure everybody knows this but me, those Range Rovers are called Velars, V-E-L-A-R, And uh, it's derived from the Italian word velare, which means to veil or cover, because when they created the prototype for this particular type of Range Rover, it was very, very, very secret. Aren't all new cars secret, though? They camouflage them in weird ways as they drive them on public streets. Right. Don't they call those ghost cars or something Something like like that? Something like that, yeah. But I, I don't know why this one was more secret than others. (laughs) <laughs> I don't I don't either. And, uh, you know, I had this nice drive home where I was thinking of um, <laughs> you know, what other <laughs> linguistic terms could we use to name cars? <laughs> the uvular, fo- the Ford uvular. A nasal <laughs> instead right, of a right. nasal. The Kia nasal. <laughs> <laughs> Talk to us. We've got a dozen ways to reach us on our website at waywardradio.org. This show's about language seen through the lens of family, history, and culture. Stick around for more. Got a minute? We need your help. Head over to gum.fm slash words and share your thoughts in our quick survey. Your feedback matters. It's the backbone of our show's success. Thanks for making our show even more successful. That's G-U-M dot F-M slash W-O-R-D-S. Thank you. You're listening to Away With Words, the show about language and how we use it. I'm Grant Barrett. And I'm Martha Barnett. Is listening to an audiobook for your book club somehow cheating? You know, there was a time when I would have said yes, that a printed book forces you to engage and focus as you're translating those letters on the page into words in your mind. And I would have argued that reading a printed book makes it easier to stop and absorb what you just read. And it allows you to immerse yourself in the kind of deep reading that results in what one writer calls the slow and meditative possession of a book. Or consider the words of Irish novelist Colm Tobin, who said, The difference between reading a book and listening to a book is like the difference between running a marathon and watching a marathon on TV. But, you know, in the last year or so, I've done a complete 180 on this. Audiobooks have completely changed my reading habits, and I would argue that they've changed for the better. Because for one thing, I'm reading many, many more books, like when I'm cleaning the house or walking the dog or exercising. You can't do that while you're holding a book. 
And often after a long day of staring at the computer screen, the last thing I want to do is make my bleary eyes do more work on another electronic screen. And now there are so many books that are voiced by talented actors like Meryl Streep and Claire Danes. I've talked before about Charlie Thurston's narration of Barbara Kingsolver's Demon Copperhead. It's so gorgeous that, Grant, I sometimes play it in the car all over again like a soundtrack when I'm driving around. But I do wonder if the experience is different depending on whether you're listening to fiction or nonfiction. There was this one small study years ago where students were assigned to read either a long article on a scientific topic or listen to a podcast about it. And they were tested a couple of days later, and the people who actually read the article did a lot better than the ones who just listened to it. And I think that's probably true for me as well. I find when I listen to a nonfiction audiobook, I almost always end up buying the print version and going back to it just to see what I might have missed or to to picture the structure of the book better. But um, I don't know, for better or worse, I, I think they're just different. And I'm curious to know what you and other people think about that. Yeah, I feel like we've touched on this topic before, and I'm interested to hear it sounds like that your thoughts have have moderated and modified somewhat over mm-hmm. the years. I have moved back and forth. You and I come from an audio environment. We do a radio show. We're in love with audio, and yet we're both in love with books and the printed word as well. Mm-hmm. So it's a complicated topic for us. For you, it's the idea, it sounds like. The ideas that are being transmitted by these brilliant people, it's important that you get them into you no matter how they come in. Yeah, exactly. And I think you're zeroing in on um, on what I'm coming to believe, which is that it really isn't an either or. I, I think, you know, when this technology first came along, I was thinking, well, either audio or print. But I think there's this, I don't know, alchemy that happens when somebody reads to you. I mean, who doesn't like to be read to? And there are so many talented people out there reading these books. And it's just a different experience. I mean, it's like it's like those readers are collaborating with the author, the way that actors collaborate with a playwright and maybe um, interpret it a little bit differently. Well, we would love to hear your thoughts on audiobooks versus print books or audiobooks and print books, how they both fit into your life. And we, of course, always recommend that you check out your local library and the huge resources that they offer for both audiobooks and print books. There's nothing more wonderful than a library. Let us know about your thoughts, 877-929-9673. Email words at waywardradio.org. And find a dozen other ways to reach us, no matter where you are in the world. Go to our website waywardradio.org. Hello, you have a way with words. Hi, Martha. Hi, Grant. Hi, Um, Hi. who's this? Uh, My name is Silas Grant. Um, I'm a a high schooler in Madison, Wisconsin. A high schooler? What what year? Um, Going into sophomore. Going into sophomore. All right, good years. Good years of your life. Well, what's on your mind today? So, uh, I was wondering... How did the French R sound, like the the trill all the way back in your throat, how did that develop? Because most languages descended from Latin use like a trill towards the front of your mouth, like in Spanish, carro, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So you got to tell me why is a sophomore in high school wondering about (laughs) this? So I was reading reading Tolkien a while back and I was um, kept turning to the parts of where he invented his own languages and stuff. And I was writing that stuff down because I thought it was cool. And then I started making my own languages. And so I'm 
making a language right now, and I'm trying to incorporate this sound, but I'd be interested to know like the history and how it gets into a language. Oh, Silas, how cool. You are a kindred spirit. Yeah, absolutely. And Tolkien has so many people who've inspired them to invent their own languages. He's got those wonderful appendices in the back where he talks about the languages that he's invented for his his people, the elves and the orcs and so forth. And so you want to include this French R sound in the language you're making. Yes. It's interesting that you should pick this sound out, this uvular R. And the uvula is that little dangly thing in the back of the throat. Because um, there's a really well-known book, uh, Trask's Historical Linguistics. It notes that this particular sound has spread, continues to spread throughout the European languages. It, it, it says that three centuries ago, uh, the Western European languages has what's known as some kind of coronal R. That's more like the the R that happens on the very front of the mouth, where the R happens on the alveolar ridge. That's that, that hard, bony ridge behind your teeth. But today, that uvular R that happens in the back of the mouth, with that little dangly bit, happens in eight languages, in Basque and French and Italian, German, Dutch, Danish, Norwegian, and Swedish. And so this is a really interesting language phenomenon, isn't it? Yeah. It's a, it's a phonemic shift is what they call it. And um, so it's not just French that has had this happen. Part of what happens here is that we have this concept known as prestige languages, and French typically has been a prestige language where something happens in French and other people who admire the French and their culture, particularly for their fashion and their food and their literature, might imitate the high class and the well-known and the important people in France and borrow their French words or learn to speak French and high-class French, and perhaps they've borrowed some of the the sounds from the language as well. And that's exactly how this particular R came to be in French itself. Uh, in the 9th and the 14th centuries, in Old French, they didn't have this R sound. It sounded more like the modern R that we have in Italian and Spanish today, um, which was like the Latin R back in the day. Um, but around the 17th or 18th century, in Paris, we got this R sound that is like rouge. I'm, I'm exaggerating it here so it's a little easier to hear on the radio and in the podcast. And um, this new uvular R is was a characteristic of posh speech. And the other thing they had was this, to make that R, they didn't open their mouth very much. They tried to avoid opening their mouth wide, and that really forms that R rouge. Anyway, suffice to say, by the end of the 18th century, that, that, that R sound, that new R sound, the one that we know today, was firmly established in Parisian French and then spread to lots of other parts of the French-speaking world. But it by no means is standard now. There, that R isn't standard even in France, and other parts of the French-speaking world don't necessarily have that R. And even in places in Paris and France where they use that R, there are other R's still in use. It just depends on the word and where it appears in the sentence and and what's being said and by whom and to whom. That's very interesting. Yeah. It's very interesting. Canadian, and Canadian French, of course, their R's are, are, are different. They're a little more like they used to be than the modern French are. Silas, do you have a name for your conlang? Um, you know, not not yet. Um, I, I, I don't know. I kind of settle on the name later on. Um, can, okay. can you say hello to us in your new language? 
Sure. Uh, Alakwa. 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 I oh, like that. Nice. And what about goodbye? Goodbye. Ami. Ami. And yes and no? Um, ma and Naya. And Ma and Naya. Okay. Very good. Alakwa. Ma and Naya. Those are all very good. I like the sound of that language. I think you're, I think you're going places with this guy. Send us uh, a yeah. little email with an update to your, your language, all right? Yeah. All right. Thank and you so much. Care. And good luck in school. Bye-bye. Bye-bye, Silas. Share your language stories with us, 877-929-9673. One of our conversations prompted this remembrance from Kirsten Eversbaugh, who lives in Evanston, Illinois. She and her husband lived in a co-op in college at the University of Michigan, and it was common in co-ops across campus to have food and other things that were just there for common use. Anybody could take them. And the acronym that they used on campus was GUF, which uh, stood for general use free food, but it also stood for detergent and just anything else that you had that anybody could take. And uh, she said uh, that they were recently together with a group of friends from college, and they still use that term because it's it's so nice to have a term for anything that's fair game for everyone. Guff. General use free food. Guff. Oh, yeah. I don't imagine there'd be a lot of collision with the other meaning of guff. That's pretty handy. <laughs> yeah, I like it. Well, you can call us and you can give us either kind of guff on the phone, 877-929-9673. Hello, you have a way with words. Hello, this is Sheila. Hi, Sheila. Where are you calling us from? From Charlotte, North Carolina. Oh, wonderful. Well, welcome to the show, Sheila. What can we do for you? Um, I called regarding my father. Um, he's deceased. Were he alive, he'd be 103 today. And as a kid growing up, he used to always ask us, did we need any gitas, which was the term he used for money. And then he went on with his nieces and nephews, his grands, my nieces and nephews, and he would always ask them as they were leaving, do you need any gitas? And we don't know the origin of that word or how that became money for him. Well, that's pretty generous of him. Did you need gitas? Oh, from time to time. And even if you said <laughs> no, he would still give it to you. Oh, oh. Yeah, there we go. That's, <laughs> what a sweetheart. That's a good fella, yeah. G-E-E-T-U-S, something like that? I guess. I I don't know. He was from Alabama, so it was said with a pretty thick southern accent. But but you're you know I'm listening to your accent. You're not originally from North Carolina, are you? I grew up in Chicago. Yeah, I can hear mm, that in your vowels. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Gita, so you're not the only one who can't really decide how to spell it. I've got four or five different spellings here. G e e d u s is one of the spellings. G e e t u s. G e t i s. G e e t a s. Sometimes G-H-E-E-T-U-S, and then sometimes people just say geets. Give me some geets, I mean, giving some money. <laughs> oh. um, the origin of it is lost to mystery, like a lot of slang, but I have a little theory that I want to share with you, and you can see what you think. You can judge it for me and see if you think it's, it's worthy. When digging up the origin of this term, I discovered two interesting facts. One is a lot of the early uses of it come from California which is very strange. Hmm. Uh, many, many of them in the 1920s just show up in California newspapers. One of my favorite quotations actually showed up in a, a Eureka, California newspaper from 1923. And there's this columnist who went by the pen name of Hector 
H-E-C-K hyphen T-O-R. It's this slangy, anonymous columnist, and he wrote mostly about gambling and gamblers. So as you can imagine, his writing was wild. <laughs> he wrote, in one of his columns, he wrote, One of the town pool room sharks maintains that he is sanitary the year round because somebody sends him to the cleaners every Saturday night. But that makes no never mind with us. We know that as long as he is out of Gitas, he is also out of soap. (laughs) And I just think that's funny. They send him to the cleaners, meaning that they take him for all his money. Um, I just, in that he, all of his columns are like that. And he used it in a few newspapers. So, that's interesting to me that it might have been a Western term. But a little earlier than that, it shows up twice in a newspaper in Atchison, Kansas in 1920, where somebody is said to have the Gitas, as if, it, and they call it a malady. I was going to say. Like yeah, and, but they don't really say what it is. They say, huh. W.P. Wagner has the Gitas. The Gitas is the malady which made Judge Jackson's rooster famous. And I, I've never heard of Judge Jackson's rooster, so I don't know why it was famous. And I couldn't figure out who Judge Jackson was or anything about the rooster. And then a day later in the same paper, in the same column, W.P. Wagner, colon, the Gitas is not serious, but very inconvenient. <laughs> I don't know. Oh. I don't know what the Gitas is. But I'm thinking, you know, the Martha, you, you probably are thinking what I'm thinking. There's all these terms talking about you're not of bills. You know, we talk about the knot or the bankroll, the roll of money, your cabbage roll. And I'm just wondering mm-hmm. if Wagner's Gitas oh. was like a goiter or something, um, you know, or a boil, you know, maybe on his bum or derriere. And uh-huh. maybe Gitas might refer to your bankroll or your roll of money. And so oh. both of these refer to a knot or bump or roll or, or, or something. They're, it's about a, a knot of something. I don't oh. know. Hmm. Just a theory. It's very loosey-goosey based only upon those, those few appearances of the word. Yeah, I I think I was thinking just get us, you know, something that you get. Yeah, that's what Jonathan Green, the slang lexicographer's theory is, but that's just simply based on just the phonetic similarity. There's absolutely Uh no citation evidence for that, though. Well, that's interesting. We always kind of wondered, he was in the Navy in World War II, and we wondered if the origin came from his travels that way. Um, Mm. He may have picked it up there. It's certainly slangy. Yeah, and people in the Navy pick up all kinds of new language from, you know, you encounter so many new people from around the country when you're in the Navy. So you get a lot of new language that way. Right, and you'd spend your gitas on the (laughs) gidunk. On the ice cream, right? (laughs) Well, Sheila, in other words, we don't know. (laughs) Yeah, I'll I'll Uh hold out for more information. You know, it's one of those terms you kind of put on your list of, boy, I'd like to know more. And occasionally a new database will go online or a whole big batch of newspapers will be digitized. And I'll, I'll look it up again and see what I can find. Thank you so much. Take All right, care. Take Bye-bye. Care. Uh-huh. If you know what made Judge Jackson's rooster famous, do let us know. <laughs> and if you have a question about anything related to language or slang, no matter where you picked it up, let us know. 877-929-9673 is a toll-free number in the United States and Canada. And there are a dozen ways to reach us. You can find them on our website at waywardradio.org. Grant, I really 
am serious about learning how to watch and appreciate cricket, and I'm collecting all the terms so that I'll be ready when I see my first cricket match. Um, And one of the terms that I really like and can't wait to use is, how's that? H-O-W-Z-A-T. Is that just a form of how is that? Yes, yes, and that's that's what you use uh, when you're appealing for uh, an umpire to uh, reconsider a call. How's that? How's that? <laughs> oh, I see. Yes, and quiz it. Yeah, like uh, give me that again. Yeah, it's pretty polite. Eight seven seven nine two nine nine six seven three. Toll free in the United States and Canada. Our team includes senior producer Stephanie Levine, engineer and editor Tim Felton, and quiz guide John Chinesky. We'd love to hear from you, no matter where you are in the world. Go to waywardradio.org contact. Subscribe to the podcast, hear hundreds of past episodes, and get the newsletter at waywardradio.org. Whenever you have a language story or question, our toll-free line is open in the U.S. and Canada, 1-877-929-9673. Or send your thoughts to words at waywardradio.org. Away With Words is an independent production of Wayward, Inc., a nonprofit supported by listeners and organizations who are changing the way the world talks about language. Special thanks to Michael Breslauer, Josh Eccles, Claire Grotting, Bruce Rogo, Rick Seidenworm, and Betty Willis. Thanks for listening. I'm Martha Barnett. And I'm Grant Barrett. Until next time, goodbye. Bye. Hey, listeners, we have a favor to ask. We'd love for you to fill out our listener survey at gum.fm slash words. Your feedback is crucial. It's quick, and it helps us make our show even better. It shapes our show, helps us plan, and ensures we're bringing you the content you love. That's gum.fm slash words. Thanks for being a part of what we do. Thank you.